I think it's just a matter of really being able to watch what's happening on the world around us and keeping up with it from a technological and data standpoint. We have a great group of colleagues to discuss how getting produce to its final destination has changed over the last decade and where they see it going. We are doing five more episodes in the podcast on the last mile. We are setting up the issues by giving you a primer today on the big topics in this area, and we'll cover those in the rest of the season as well. So let's just jump right in here and let's get you introductions and tell us just a little bit about yourself and your role. And Melissa, we can start with you. Perfect. Hi, I'm Melissa Melshanker-Ackerman. I'm the president of Produce Alliance. I'm also the chair of the Food Service Council. So when talking at IFPA, so when talking to different people about what topics were important to their businesses and what things they see, the last mile and how it's changed was a big topic that many things centered around. So I'm excited today to be here and to have two of my colleagues that we talk about these things all the time at Produce Alliance here with me and looking forward to the conversation. So thank you so much for having us, Vani. Excellent. All right, Tyler, how about you? Yeah, thank you so much, Bonnie. Uh, Tyler Deutsch, uh, Senior Vice President, Business Development, Produce Alliance. So great to be here. Uh, role of Produce Alliance, and very, very good segue into our conversation is that we build a large national produce program together, working with uh, the largest uh, independent distributors across the country. And we uh, put together the programs that work to do last mile distribution into restaurants, hospitality chains, et cetera. And so the conversation here is very important, and uh, we're looking forward to a good discussion. Thank you. Great. Thanks. David, I love watching the train behind you. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, straight straight out of downtown Chicago here. So uh, thank you uh, for having us, uh, Vani. My name is David Krauss. I'm the SVP of custom distribution here at Produce, Produce Alliance. In our custom distribution realm, we cater to... 500 plus unit quick serve restaurant chains and uh, C store operators. So uh, excited for the conversation here. Excellent. Well, we certainly have the right people in the room here to talk about last mile. So David, let's start with you. What are the different ways food service customers receive produce? And has that changed? Has there been a change in that kind of post pandemic? Yeah, I think it's important to, to set the stage by looking at the end user operators that we serve on a day-to-day and, and just their their shift in, in behaviors. So really over the past several years, especially throughout the pandemic, uh, you're, you're seeing uh, a different focus on menu re-engineering for food service operators. Um, that really ties to the labor sourcing, productivity, and engagement of products, the store footprint and design, then off-premise uh, optimization. So how we procured product five years ago looks looks vastly different. So I would say uh, the growth in off-premise, so commissaries, for example, that might prep products before it hits a restaurant has grown over 30% in the, the last several years, um, utilizing uh, more central kitchens and a unique type of uh, distribution networks for Final Mile. This also opened up the ghost kitchen model to, to get to the consumer a lot quicker. So that really has driven a lot of change in the SKUs we're sourcing, how we're distributing different fresh produce items, the processors, consolidators, and growers that we're utilizing throughout our network. 
and really uh, diversifying uh, our network of suppliers. So yeah, just right off the bat, a lot of changes in the last five years, uh, even more so in uh, the, the last 13 years that, that I've been doing this. Wow. Tyler, what would you add to that? Um, yes, I think there's a lot of like, tech, obviously with technology, with the way that everyone's wanting things at, you know, at, at their fingertips, I think there's a way that people were getting the product in a whole different fashion today than they did 5, 10, 15 years ago, obviously. And I think there's a way that distribution and a way that we can put things together from a national standpoint, we can really hone in on giving the consumer, giving giving the people who take these uh, products today much more like a fast experience that's really pre- more prevalent now, now than ever. Definitely the speed and accuracy is such a huge play in um, how people are getting the products today. And uh, I think it's going to continue to go and really, really evolve. So Tyler, staying with you, as consumers in retail, how do you get your groceries? What shifts have you seen? Yeah, absolutely. So I think as a consumer in groceries, you're really a piece of trying to get it. Another way of getting it you know, fast and speedy to your home through different types of scenarios. Not a lot of people are going through the regular outlets anymore through, you know, different, uh, you know, regular grocery channels. You know, we got the third party systems now that are doing deliveries to you. There's, uh, all different types of models that now groceries and retailer really have to get involved. Melissa, what would you add about some of the non-traditional models out there? So I'm going to disagree a little bit with my colleague, um, Tyler on this, but I think that What's happening and what I'm seeing and in, in, in looking at the future a little bit is the convenience for the buyer, the, for the, the person getting it is important, but they're balancing that against what they have in their checkbook and what they're able to do in order to get that product. So if it's going to cost that delivery fee extra or if the cost of buying it at the grocery store versus online adds to that margin that they bring home at the end of the day to their family, sometimes for convenience, it's worth it for the time that they have. And sometimes it's not. And so I think as we see where the recession, if it comes, where it goes and how things are looked at, I think some of the places that you might see on fast food or um, quick serve or things like that, that may have third party delivery, we might see a slowdown when people are looking at you know, what at the bottom line do I need to get that product? But I think for others, you know, millennials and Gen Zs and and people who have very little time, the convenience factor that has come into this with all the different methods of getting it to the home are so prevalent. And I think that depending on where they go and what they want, like that's just going to continue to grow. I totally agree. I mean, it's such an exciting time of convenience and just the, the the right here, right now world we're in. I mean, I have uh, three small children. We live in a neighborhood outside Wrigley Field. So we're in the heart of the city. And just the fact that I can log on to an app around dinner time, order from my favorite restaurant and also strawberries for the next morning and, uh, you know, a bundle of bananas as well as a, a bottle of Tylenol. It's an amazing thing. And just that platform in itself, I think opens up so many doors. I, I do believe that the fresh produce supply chain isn't fully prepared for the, the right here, right now generation that we're in. So 
But I do believe that it's going to be an exciting time of, of a lot of innovation that, that we've already seen take charge. Yeah, it's amazing generational. My uh, 26-year-old daughter moved back home with us at the end of COVID before she was getting ready to start graduate school. And I was just amazed at how quickly she ordered everything. You know, she would order from DoorDash, or, I'm hungry and I feel like this. And so she would order it or she would order food in. And and my husband and I, who obviously have more money than she does, you know, are like, well, I don't want to pay that fee. And I, I can't imagine doing that. And I'll just make eggs because that's what I have in the refrigerator. And it really is a difference. I think a generational difference of I want this now and I'm, I can just order it and get, you know, get the strawberries that I want. Now, how do you think that's different in produce, you know, compared to like food service, you know, people ordering DoorDash and things like that, of, of prepared food. When people think about ordering, you know, like when someone says, I just feel like eating strawberries right now, you know, or is, is that starting to happen? And like you said, are we kind of set up to respond to that? My colleague might differ. I think we're slowly getting there. I think produce is still one of those hard things to, for some people to, to get a delivery on and get exactly the ripeness that they want and the, you know, the perfect strawberry or the, you know, the first stage banana. I think there's still some tolerance there that still needs to be worked on and rectified, but I think we're slowly getting there more and more. And then those third party facilities, third party delivery systems are getting more sophisticated. I think we're slowly getting there, but I think we're a little further behind than obviously some other categories. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think just the, the innovation in packaging uh, alone has, has really been uh, been the catalyst uh, for, for growth in the category. I'd say speed in, in packaging uh, have been some of the biggest challenges we've experienced over the last five or so years. But with the innovation, it's getting better. And I think, you know, to your point, Vani, uh, really the mirroring the same experience of a restaurant or a grocery store, you know, at your home has really... Uh, been the goal, fresh produce and the perishable nature of every commodity that we're handling does vary. So how do you really create the best atmosphere for every commodity, whether it's a strawberry, a banana, or a nice salad that you know, you're distributing uh, through different verticals? Mm-hmm. So that when you mentioned the innovation in, in packaging, what, what sorts of things are you seeing around that? I'd be interested to hear. So I think as it relates to food service, the quality of the packaging and being able to mirror the experience that you're having in uh, in a restaurant. So just ventilation, you know, making sure, you know, you don't have liquid dripping in the bottom of the bag. I think just the sizing of items and being able to really treat each fresh item differently than, you know, your standard packaging, for example. I think that's, uh, it's been really exciting to see. I mean, when we talk about like my favorite steakhouse or something like that, before COVID, I mean, never in a million years would we order, you know, a nice club sandwich or a nice salad from a steakhouse. But now, I mean, we've gotten much more accustomed to eating at home and on Friday nights. And if we're going to spend the money for delivery, I mean, it's it's got to be a quality product. So I think out of COVID, many food service operators have really learned that there is a path with packaging innovation. So I'd say sizing, you know, the ventilation of the product and being able to to really understand how the product is being distributed has been really pivotal in that. What other changes have you seen? It seems like every conversation we have now, it's like three different phases. There's like, what happened during the pandemic? What is the kind of after the pandemic? And then Melissa, as you started to talk about, you know, with it, everyone's looking at inflation and a possible recession. So what kinds of shifts have you seen as related to those three kind of eras? 
I'll start in the fact that I think a lot of people may know or not, but that we were very big participants in the USDA Farmers to Family Food Box program. And I feel that during that, obviously that's a pandemic, there was new supply chain created that got food super close to people's home that was using volunteer networks, that was using all different types of synergies and partnerships and collaborations. So I think that from that, we saw that it's possible to get food deeper into communities and try to get fresh food out there. After that, I think that there was some some changes that stuck and some changes that didn't. And I think that the whole new movement of food as medicine and everything Molly at IFPA is working on and all the different things as, you know, the big goals that, that we're putting forth as IFPA, those things are going to help get produce deeper into the communities and taking those learnings of how do you partner with non-traditional or people that didn't do fresh before. So making sure that we teach them everything we know about SOPs and best practices and all of that to be safe on how we're getting it there, but continuing to get the fresh and the cold supply chain to grow further and get it legs that are taking it even further into the last mile. That's fun. I mean, I agree with Melissa. I think that the, the innovation and the stages that occurred from front of the death, front of the pandemic, and then all the way to the current, such a large arc and such a, a brightness to it so that you can now, like Melissa said, get things to the people in need and to a whole new audience that you can get before. David, what have you seen in regional and local production? Is this something that the consumer wants? Yeah, I mean, I believe the local movement was a luxury prior to the pandemic. I believe now more than ever, it's a necessity. I say it all the time, but I believe the next five years, all supply chains are going to look completely different. And uh, you could say COVID, but weather, climate shifts, the food safety, pathogen contamination, economic challenges, and labor availability, and the social side as well. I mean, pick the facet. You know, we have to be nimble. We have to be agile in our supply chains and getting closer to the source, uh, I, I believe is the future. Whether you talk about controlled ag or identifying new paths of consolidation and, and distribution and processing to net a better quality product, local is the future. However, you want to define it, but establishing production closer to the consumer is a necessity now more than ever, I believe. And, you know, we talk a lot about resiliency and agility and this year is is uh, and then, you know how we're operating on behalf of many of our, our partners it's really pivotal that we identify that regional diversification yeah I completely agree yeah I just I know I agree with David and it's all about backup plans as well you know having local regional uh, opportunities contingency plans things like that to really beef up the supply chain I mean uh, I know any of their operations any of their operators they want to have more than a single source of areas. They want to be able to pull in different regional areas and start local. You got to really have all of these different things in place to really have a very suitable supply chain for any type of situation. I think local and regional is more prevalent than ever. I would add, though, like I think that we also have to think, as we all know about sustainability and all of the other environmental impact there is on the transportation, but then also just food waste on farm and upstream. And so if we are able to look at that with a wider lens and determining, we call it value-based produce, like the right product at the right time for the right application, I think that as an industry, we can start making movement toward helping with some of the goals that are needed for 
everything that's happening within our sustainability movement. So David, what have been the biggest changes in procurement that technology has pushed? We've had to operate in a more nimble fashion with less resources and less people. And I believe the pandemic did light the fire for the industry to invest in more disruptive technology to to really streamline the fresh produce supply chain and identify procurement efficiencies. I say it a lot, which is a bit controversial, but produce is 10 years behind many other supply chains in a lot of ways because you know, we're only as strong as our weakest link. And let's be real, the Michigan blueberry grower may not be as sophisticated when it comes to technology as, say, uh, a Salinas romaine grower. So from our seat, it really has been embracing new disruptive technologies, looking at other industries as, as kind of the crystal ball. How do we get deeper into the data in clean data to drive technology, which in turn gives us efficiencies throughout the supply chain. So ultimately, as an industry, we need to be in a position where we have the real-time data throughout the supply chain. We're not there yet by any stretch, but our team, we talk a lot about the four A's of digital procurement, digitization, and it's automation, alignment, alleviation, and acceleration. So that really resonates with me now more than ever. And uh, as it relates to- What's alleviation? How do you define what that is? Can we be two steps ahead of a market event to source product from Santa Maria versus a scenario where disease is wiping out an entire crop? A week ahead will alleviate tremendous amount of pain for for many of our our supply chain partners. So uh, working through those- uh, going through that scenario planning. So how do you, when you gave the blueberry growers an example, not to pick on them, but if there is someone that's that weak link in the chain, how do we work through the whole chain to kind of bring everybody up to the level where the the data is moving through the whole chain and whose responsibility is that? And how do we do that? I think it's all of our responsibility. And that's what I love about Produce Alliance and, and really Melissa's leadership. We really look at how do you find a win-win-win scenario situation between our operator partners, our distributor partners, and our grower partners. So again, you're only as strong as your weakest link, but what is the bar that we need to be shooting for? So whether that's working in tandem with blueberry grower out of California to consult for Michigan blueberry grower or utilizing some of our consolidators to really raise the bar as far as labeling and traceability, you know, tap into our uh, amazing team of food safety consultants to get down into the field to identify the path of, of raising the bar. We owe it to all of our partners to use the best and, and strongest players to, to really set the stage for those that may be a few months, years behind. It's education too. I mean, it's true education it, and it's bringing, you know, with First Alliance, you know, we, we bring growers together, we bring distribution together and, you know, we feed off each other as well. So if you see someone lagging in the pack, we kind of push that ahead. So I think there's a big push to keeping up and really allowing the best of the best to, to push the rest of the industry. And you got to be open-minded about it from, from every level. So I believe that, you know, that's a big part of what we do at First Alliance. I think also it's like, the market has to want it, the market has to bear it, and the market has to pay for it, right? Like, that's kind of the only way that we can make things move 
forward is that we can compensate people to be able to put in the technology necessary to run the data, to be able to, and then at one at a point where it's scalable to tons of different people, our weakest link are going to be brought in to that fold. So it's it's the support of those growers. It's the predicting usage and getting contracts with them and help and helping them to get to where they need to be. So if you're able to forecast and to commit to them, then they're able to invest in their business. So I do think it's a full approach, starting with like the market itself, all the way down to the grower and making sure that they have the team in place to put it in place. All right. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So thinking about all the attention that's being paid to carbon footprint and carbon smart commodities right now, is that going to affect the last mile? And what effect is that having? What are you talking about around carbon? Yes. <laughs> I think the answer is yes, yes, yes. And we know that Max and his team um, at IFBA are very involved in this. But I think there's questions on sequestration of carbon versus the practices of regenerative ag versus all of the different things that we need to look at. And again, starting at what the market asks, what the customer asks and moving down. But I think even more than that, there's just a generation that is very equipped to ask the right questions. So if we can get you know, in front of it and do what we need to, we see what's happening with how you know the movement of the degrees of the, of the world. So I think it's very, very important. And I think it's something that we all have to strive a long right side technology to be a part of. And I think our end users are, you know, the end user operators and, and our consumers, they want to push for that. And I think, you know, it will be a trickling effect as well on our growers to that level. You know, I think everybody will, will push that along. Totally agree with Tyler and Melissa. And I, I, I do think with, with the evolution of these new supply chain models, uh, it's not a luxury to incorporate, you know, an environmentally responsible process. I think it's it's also going to be a, ne- a necessity uh, that goes into your you know, the question earlier as far as the local strategy. I mean, can you find something that that is sustainable, that is socially responsible, that also checks the boxes of enhanced quality and shelf life and you know availability? So I think on a day to day basis, when we're we're working through the supply chain modeling it's it's how do you how do you check all the boxes and I, I believe there is a path for that now more than ever. I will say also like we were just in California yesterday and we were meeting with some growers. There is it feels as if as their conversations are having that those topics are coming up naturally and the innovation and then not only that but like there's a it feels to me that there's a big movement to also work hand in hand with countries all across the world to make that happen. So that was a really cool thing that I hadn't heard in past conversations was like, we're taking technology from, you know, this country and we're working with this seed grower and we're working. And it's like, maybe that was happening. But for me being on tours for years and years and years, I hadn't heard that as part of what was being said and the messaging. So I think that it's so important. And I think obviously working with other areas that might have some experience in in things that we may not have in the U.S. is so helpful for the whole world to have the sustainability movement. And one of the things that I'm seeing that is really exciting, I mean, I've been working in sustainability for many, many years. And, and most of the time when we were asking people to do sustainability practices like 10 or 15 years ago, it was a risk and it didn't work as well. And, you know, it it was usually the producer that ended up paying the cost of that and you couldn't pass it on. But now a lot of the conversations I'm having and looking around like climate smart agriculture and really thinking about some of these practices, 
in kind of built in that we we have this alignment for the first time where really kind of what's good, what's sustainable and what's good for the planet is actually good for the producer as well. So if you've got technology that allows you to use a lot less fertilizer because it's just going in one place on the seed instead of going through a whole row or, you know, those types of things, it's really aligning with less costs, better for the environment and, you know, better for the producer and, and being able to have a return on that investment. And so I'm really hearing these conversations where it's instead of producer, you take all the risk, you know, of, of doing these new practices, it's all getting spread out and it's actually, you know, benefiting. So that I think, as you're saying too, we're bringing in technology for from all over and there actually is this alignment around, we're all working on this together instead of one part of the chain having to bear the, the risk and the cost of it. Like it's almost becoming one common goal for everybody. Yeah, exactly. So my last question is, Tyler, let's start with you. Do you have a prediction of where the last mile will go in five to 10 years from now? It's your crystal ball out. <laughs> yeah. You know, with the advancement of technology and uh, how smart the consumers are going to be, I just I think there's going to be just more technology that's going to be able to get things quicker. And we're going to get things that we probably haven't done before. We might be able to get, you know, certain type of new items. You know, I think uh, things that are available today on the last mile distribution or the last mile to the consumer, we may, I think, there'll be more advancements on that. And we'll be able to see things like that we haven't, we haven't maybe got a chance to, to have before. David? Nimbleness, nimbleness, nimbleness. I, I, I believe the supply chain will look different. To my point earlier, more local production. How do we get to the final mile quicker, more efficiently, in really full traceability and visibility of the data data ecosystem of the fresh supply chain to, to really drive that that speed and efficiency? So I, I do think the consumer has a higher expectation of quality and speed and the supply chain needs to evolve to cater to that consumer. All right, Melissa, last word. <laughs> I have a little bit of a more far-fetched feeling. Um, I think that we're going to have to be able to keep up with what's happening in our atmosphere and what's happening in, in the climate. So I think that if things continue that way, there's going to be more, the production is going to have to move to places that are quicker to get there. You're going to have to have more indoor growing, hydroponics, more controlled, what you're um, doing. And I think that it's going to also cause a lot more consolidation of companies taking over from all parts of the supply chain to be able to keep up with the technology and the data and really being as efficient and um, scalable as possible in order to get things as quick as they can, given today, ice in Dallas. So I think it's just a matter of really being able to watch what's happening on the world around us and keeping up with it from a technological and, and data standpoint. Great. Well, thank you all so much. I really appreciate you being part of this program and being part of the industry. Um, you guys are true leaders and making a lot of this technology happen. So thanks very much. Thank you so much for having us. You've been listening to Fresh Takes on Tech, a podcast from the International Fresh Produce Association. Keep connected with us by subscribing to the show in your favorite podcast player. If you like what you've heard, please rate the show. That helps us keep delivering the latest on produce technology. Thank you for listening. Until next time.